is uh, part two of Dr. Yermerich's talk, um, Pain and Palliative Treatment in the Emergency Department. Okay. Um, so we're going to do some more, a couple more cases and kind of talk a little bit more nitty-gritty about um, how you might handle some of these scenarios. So this one, um, African-American male with lung cancer discovered three months ago, now metastatic to liver and bones despite chemotherapy, 20-pound weight loss, now weighs 115 pounds, significant bony pain, admitted with shortness of breath on non-rebreather and severe pain. So you're trying to get... I mean, always the struggle in these cases, right, is, is this patient, is this patient dying? Or is this patient have some complication that is reversible? I mean, that's really the question you want to ask yourself. So I'm, we're going to talk a little specifically about some of the tools that you can use for prognostication, particularly in cancer patients, because they're the easiest. I mean, if you look at... Um, if you look at cancer versus COPD versus CHF, I mean, COPD and CHF, you can have an identical presentation a year apart, and one of, the, one of those will result in death, and the other one will result in the patient living a year longer. So it's, it's very hard to know, you know, exactly when someone is or isn't dying with COPD and CHF. Um, but cancer, and, and, and dementia is another one of those where sometimes these patients can bounce back and... Um, but if we're just focusing on cancer, it's a little bit easier. So what, um, with this patient, you're trying to figure out what is this patient's prognosis? What are the kind of questions that, that are important to, in the history that can help you with prognosis? So how do you ask that question? Right. Um, so trying to get a sense of what they can do, um, you know, uh, and, and how long they've been able to do it. So if I ask somebody, well, how much time do you spend in bed? They'll be like, well, I'm just in bed at night. And then you ask some more specific questions. Well, how much of the day are you spending resting or in bed? Is it most of the day? Is it half the day? Um, less than half? The, do you go out of the house? Um, or are you mostly in the house? Um, can you dress yourself? Can you bathe yourself? Really important question, what could you do a month ago that you can't do now? Um, and, you know, there's this concept in the, in the cancer literature called the ECOG performance status scale. And it goes from zero to five. Five is dead, four is bed bound, three is in bed more than 50% of the day, two is less than 50% of the day, and one is you have some symptoms but you're functional. You are not supposed to give chemotherapy to patients who are in bed more than half the day. <laughs> um, and no study of patients with metastatic cancer giving chemo ever enroll anybody who's worse than a one. Sometimes they'll enroll twos, meaning you're in bed less than half the day, but they will never enroll a three. So these are the patients that will die from getting the chemotherapy. But, um, but functional status is really, really important, okay? and trying to ask that in, in a lot of different ways to really get a sense. Oh, they do everything for themselves. What can, do they do everything for themselves? Oh, yeah. Then you ask them more specific questions. They can't do any of their ADLs. So it's, um, it's not an easy, I, I still struggle with getting a true functional status. It's a very hard. Um, you know, and these, I think, are two are, are really, really important questions for you guys to think about asking. 
um, because a dying patient may come into the ER not because they know they want to have some miracle and they want to survive. They're coming to the ER maybe because they need relief from their symptoms or maybe they're suffering. So assessing readiness, what do you understand about your illness? What have the doctors told you about your cancer? Have they, are you, do you understand that you're gonna be cured? Do you understand that you have limited time? What's your understanding? What have they told you? And the patient may say, well, I know I'm dying um, and I'm just in a lot of pain and I just wanna be more comfortable. Or they may say, well, I'm gonna be cured with their mets everywhere. And you know, so asking that question really allows you to see where they are in their kind of understanding of their situation. Cause you're gonna have a very different conversation with them based on that, okay? Um, what were you hoping the doctors would do for you when you came to the hospital? Really, really good question. You know, what, what are you hoping that I can help you with, okay? Um, and again, you may get very interesting answers. You know, I just, I was scared, I didn't wanna be alone, I was having pain, I need help with my breathing, um, these kinds of things. So for metastatic cancer, these are the four prognostic factors that are most important. And notice none of them are test results. Is the patient short of breath? Have they not been eating well? Are they delirious? And is their, poor, is their functional status poor? So the general trajectory of life expectancy in cancer is it goes along, goes along, and then the last three months it drops off sharply. Cancer patients tend always to be shocked that they're dying, or a lot of the times they do because they've gone on for so long doing okay. Because if you think about chemotherapy, if you think about cancer, it doubles in size every however many days, right? So if your cancer doubles in size and it's this big and it doubles in size to this big, you're not gonna have a lot of symptoms. Let's say it doubles in size every 30 days. Well, when it's this big and it doubles in size, you're gonna have a whole lot of symptoms and you're not gonna be able to function very well. So that's why the functional status really, really drops off. So it doesn't matter how many METs they have. It doesn't matter where the METs are. It matters how it's affecting their function. If you can't breathe and you're not eating, you're not gonna live very long. If you're not moving around, and if you're delirious, you know that's a sign that everything's shutting down. If you have all four of these and you have advanced cancer, your median survival is 10 days, okay? If you have at least two of them, you're probably looking at one to two months, okay? And there's tons of other prognostic scales for all different kinds of diseases, but this is kind of, you know, something you can kind of actually remember and maybe think about. Um, or maybe you can't remember all four, but you remember there was a couple and, 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 and then you just get this bad feeling. I mean, and then there's this internal like, ooh. You know, one of the things that they did this study looking at asking physicians, how long do you think this patient is gonna live? The longer the physician knew the patient, the more unrealistic their prognosis was. And why do you think that is? Why would that be? Yeah, you get very emotionally attached. So you as the emotionally unattached ER doctor <laughs> may be the most realistic person in the mix, right? Yeah, so. Um, well, but again, maybe you're the person that helps the family accept death. Because if you, if your relative dies and you're not prepared and you never said goodbye and you didn't know where they wanted to be buried and you don't have, you don't even know the bank account number if you're the wife and you don't know anything, that is very traumatic and emotional. If you 
are able to connect with the family and make them understand you've done them a huge service because maybe they have time to prepare. I mean, there's all these things that are components of what we call a good death. I mean, obviously, the only good death, someone's like, the only good death is someone else's. <laughs> um, so nobody wants to die, but, you know, giving people time to finish their business to prepare for death is, is, is important, you know, and it is something you can really give them. Um, the, the most important thing is to stress non-abandonment. A lot of times patients and families are very resistant to accepting a poor prognosis because they're very, very fearful that they'll be alone and abandoned. The worst thing you can ever say is there's nothing we can do for you, okay? And again, that comes from this idea that we only view ourselves as what we can do for patients, meaning tests, studies, interventions, not just sitting with patients. I mean, talk is very cheap, and a lot of it is, a lot of it honestly is very financially driven, okay? What do you get really well reimbursed and paid to do? Procedures. Why do ER doctors make a lot more money than internists or palliative care doctors? You do a lot of procedures. You're very well trained in procedures. Does anybody give you training except me on like how to talk to families at the end of life? No, they just send you out there and say, well, just go talk to this family. But what you really have to view it as, it is a procedure that is every that needs every bit as much training as doing a central line, as doing a, you know thoracentesis, all these things. But it's very undervalued because our whole insurance system is fixated on procedures because that that's what existed when insurance was started was procedures. Medications didn't really exist, and and so so talking is something that you will always be discouraged to, from doing and be very poorly reimbursed for and very encouraged not to do. Um, and so you just have to kind of fight against that and say, you know, I know I have to be efficient. I know I have to do a good, you know, see a lot of patients, but you have to. And if you get good at it, you can do it very efficiently. I'm a very impatient person. I do not like to sit in interminably long family meetings. Um, and if you've ever been in family meetings with me, you know that I, I, I keep it, you know, I move things along. But if you get comfortable doing this, you can do it very quickly. Um, but you have to get comfortable with it. So one of the best ways to do that is to have an expert watch you. I mean, what I would really, really like and encourage you to do is, you know, I know I need to have this code status discussion. Um, maybe Dr. Yamara can come down and watch me do it and give me feedback. And that's the way you get better at things, okay? so. I'm always happy to do that. Um, another really good phrase to help with this non-abandonment concept is, you know, I'm really hopeful that um, maybe we can get your breathing better and, and get you out of the hospital. But we have to be prepared for the worst. You know, we have to be prepared that this may be the end of your life. I don't know. But we're gonna try to do everything we can to keep you as comfortable as possible. And these are the things that we're doing for you. Okay, I always stress that a lot. What are we doing to help you, even though we can't save your life? Uh, so instead of saying there's nothing more we can do, I'll say there's a lot we can do to help your father feel comfortable. We can treat his pain, his shortness of breath, and make sure he doesn't suffer. Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about this. Focusing only on hope leaves patients unaware of limited life expectancy. Patients look to cues for physicians regarding discussions of death. And if you focus only on hope, you can cause physicians to withdraw when it's clear that the patient is dying. 
So this happens a lot with the oncologists, right? They, their interaction with the family is all predicated on the chemo working. And when the chemo stops working, they feel like they failed. And they, a lot of times you'll have these conversations with the oncologists where they want to believe that it's anything but the cancer. Oh no, like if you ever had a, if you've ever been the phone with Dr. Fruhoff and he'll start, he'll start talking about, oh, you know, no, I really think that they have this infection and I really think that if we just give antibiotics, we'll get them through this and, and everything's going to be fine. And, and so you never want to go directly against someone's primary oncologist, otherwise you'll get yourself in a whole lot of hot water and it really won't help the patient. So a lot of times what I'll say, well, I, you know, I'm very hopeful that what Dr. Fruhoff is saying is correct, but, you know, we also have to be prepared in case things aren't, you know, don't go well. So, you know, again, you may not be able to have a code status discussion if he doesn't want you to, but one, what is one very important thing you can do um, to prepare if things go south, if you can't have the code status discussion? <laughs> Call me. Um, <laughs> now, this is a little bit guess what I'm thinking, but the most important thing is who's your decision maker? If you couldn't make decisions for yourself, who do you want to make decisions for you? Especially if you think the patient like may not be able to make decisions soon, that's a really important question. Especially with us, you know, we work with a lot of patients of different cultures, you know, and legally, if you haven't asked, it's the spouse and the children and the, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in these big Hispanic families, it may be the whole family together. Or in uh, immigrant Asian family, they may prefer their children who are native English speaking to be the main decision maker, not the spouse. You know, it can just be different. Um, yeah. No, no, go ahead. So I had a patient yesterday, and I want to know what I could have done differently. Okay, yeah. Um, this was a patient who came in, had some kind of GI cancer, and had messed to bone and liver, and came in vomiting blood and was lethargic. Okay. So uh, it ended up being a unit admission. So I find out later that the kid, the family chose not to tell the patient that he has messed. So it put us in a kind of a bind. I didn't know, and I know he was going to be admitted, so it gave me limited time to begin with. What should I have said, if anything, and should I have made a palliative care consult? Uh, well, yes to palliative care consult. The, the, the answer is it's never too early. Would you be surprised if the patient died in a year? If the answer is no, you can always call us. Um, no, I'm serious. Which, which would be like your entire population um, in the ED. But, um, I'll just rent a CPU bed one set of shops. Um, so yes, the answer is definitely you should call us. But, um, so this is, there's this great article by this guy, Tim Quill, and the title of it is Don't Tell Mother. Um, and it's exactly about how you deal with So first of all, was the patient English speaking? No. Okay, what did he speak? Korean. Oh. Those are always my examples <laughs> is the Korean patient because uh, they do that a lot. But I mean, every culture does it, right? We've had Caucasian patients who have said, oh, I don't want to tell my mom. And, um, but it is very cultural. It can be very cultural. And in many countries, even until just recently, the, the tradition was you do not tell the patient they have cancer. Um, many, many countries. Um, and that is just starting to change, but it's, it's, it still happens. So, um, you know, and there's this concept that, oh, if you tell them, then they will lose hope. And um, so how do you deal with it? So uh, has anybody, what have people done? They would ask the patient, if you had some bad news, would you want me to tell you? And if they said no, 
there's something bad. Yeah. 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 What is it? What is the it? The family was translated. <laughs> 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 right. Can you imagine if a contractor conspired to impose equation about a defect in your house? How do you feel about that? Pretty betrayed. It's like, I just hired you to do this. What do you mean you're not telling me what's going on? You're not telling me what you're doing. What kind of crap is that? Well, it's the same thing. You can't withhold conspire against a patient to tell them what's going on in their body unless they specifically give you permission not to. It's a, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but the, the family is notwithstanding. If the patient wants to know, you got to tell them. You can tell the family they got to tell them, but i got to tell them. So it definitely comes up to a lot of these cultural, you know, and, and you have to understand, in order to understand other cultures, you have to understand the biases of your own culture. So again, everybody came to America, your parents and your grandparents, whoever, you know, because individually they wanted a better life. And so we very much believe that the individual is the most important person and the individual has the right to choose. You know, many families, for many families, the, the patient, what the patient wants is very immaterial because the most important unit to them is the family and it's what the family wants that's much more important than what the patient wants um so you know it's um it, and you know we just had one the other day it's this egyptian guy and uh we go and he's dying of pancreatic cancer and his daughters are both obese and OBGYNs, and they're just like oh you know we just we want to keep trying things and so we go and ask the patient well you know um what do you want he's like i just want to be comfortable do you want to come back to the hospital no um, I just want to go home. And then we go into this family meeting, and I said, well, you, were you surprised that he said that? And they're like, oh, no, 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 When he gets depressed and down, he says these things. But then we just buck him up, and we tell him that, you know, he just needs to fight on, and he's better. But if you give him bad news, he'll say that. You know, so you're just like, oh, God. So, so I agree. So the, the most important thing is, is, is you guys have those two-way phones downstairs. Okay, where you can call interpreter services, try, try as much as possible to use the, the interpreter line for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, when you use families to interpret, often the family speaks what I call the dangerous amount of English. They're not interpreting correctly. They're not really, you know, they don't speak the greatest English. And one thing that I have seen in the Korean culture is you'll have grandma that speaks Korean only. Parents who speak Oh, yeah, okay. No, how did it go? Okay, yeah. Parents that speak Korean, very limited English. Children who speak excellent English and very limited Korean. And nobody can talk to each other. Um, it was very, very bizarre. So you have to realize that families are very, it's a very, I mean, if you want to just ask basics like pain, but if you want deep stuff, you really got to use the phone. So what I'll do is I'll, you, you cannot use the family to interpret for this. But So I'll get the, I'll get the, interpreter on the phone and I'll tell the family I'm going to ask the patient if they want to know information and so and in front of the family I'll say some people want to know everything about their illness including how long they might live including any you know difficult decisions Um, some people want to know all these things and make their own decisions other people prefer for their family to hear the news and decide for them your family would like to hear the news and decide for you. And you just focus on feeling better. How do you feel about that? And 80% of the time, the patient will say, that's fine. But 20% of the time, they will say, no, I want to know. And the family always backs down because they will not 
you know, in, in front of the patient, they will not go against them. So, but you have to use the interpreter. You can't use the family to do it. And you have to tell the family what you're going to do. But if you go directly against the patient's wishes and you tell them, you may do harm because the patient may not want to know. But yeah, it makes it different. But then if the, fam if the patient says, I don't really want to know, then you're okay. You know, then you just use the family and you talk to them and you. It's a pretty easy solution, but it's very discomforting when it <laughs> happens because you're just like, you feel like you're caught in the middle. Um, so I do think it's per important to use the words death and dying. Again, to really, you know, and you can say it in a way, you know, using that we hope for the best. Like a lot of times I'll say, you know, I really hope that we can get you home and out of the hospital or get your mom home, but I'm worried she may be dying, okay? And then you're not saying, she's dying and you've got to accept it. You know, what you're saying is that you're, you're empathizing and you're saying, I'm hopeful that things will go well, but you have to, we have to be prepared that I'm worried that, you know, she may be near death. And use those words because nobody else is using them. And like my, my least favorite phrase is, well, what's the prognosis? The prognosis is poor. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. It can mean you're going to live another 20 years. It can mean you're going to live another 20 hours. You know, I, everybody is so incredibly vague because no one wants to, you know, write off the patient. So, anyway. Um, so, now is my favorite part of the talk when we get to, um, oh, um, so other new, so we're going to do a little role play on having a DNR discussion. Aren't you excited? Um, but before we do that, um, I do just want to let you guys know that we are in the process of moving a, of improving our DNR form because it really can't get much worse than the form that we have. Um, the form that we have is this like potpourri of um, choices that when the residents my favorite is the residents go through it like it's a like it's an a la carte menu at McDonald's. <laughs> do you do you want compressions? Do you want shocks? Do you want pressors? Do you want SVT meds? I mean, it is so terrible. So what we did was we used the, the and this has been presented at critical care committee and in some similar form. Um, it, it's not going to probably be that different, but um, here. Um, Hopefully, and again, the idea is to help you guys take a post and then fill out a DNR form. Um, and also to, with one click, to say where the patient goes. You know, the patient goes to the unit, yes or no. Because everybody knows, like, you can't have pressors on the floor, you can't be intubated on the floor, you can do BiPAP on the floor, but, so this really says unit, yes or no. Um, and then in the unit, there's different choices. But we tried to really, the fight right now is certain people want more choices on the on the full treatment part, but we're trying to really limit that um, because we want it to make a little more sense. Um, so anyway, um, so why don't we, uh, Mike? You'll do this because you've worked with me a lot. Um, what? Uh, let's let's 
So take that guy with a lung cancer patient. So let's say he has a very poor performance status. He's been in bed most of the day for the last month. This is the guy on the non-rebreather, metastatic lung cancer, bony pain. Um, and functional status is poor, he's short of breath, he's not eating well, but he's mentally clear. So he's got three out of the four things. So you think he has a prognosis of maybe a few weeks um, to maybe a month. And, and you're sent to address his code status. What, how do you go about doing that? Uh, I always start the conversation by saying, I, I don't know if anybody's ever talked to you about this before, but I have some really tough questions and things I want to discuss with you. Okay. And one of them is, if somebody told you you were nearing the end of your life, what would you want the doctors to do for you? That's how I typically do Okay, good. Um, and then, uh, usually people think specifically of You get this deep feeling in the pit of your stomach that it is not going well. No, yeah. Going well. And when it's not going well, and they sort of imply that they want everything, uh, especially the family members, I'll say something like, well, it's my personal belief that CPR is preventing death. The person is already dead. Their heart has stopped. If we do nothing, they will remain dead. We're trying to bring them back. Mm -hmm. And in somebody who is young and healthy and just got into a motorcycle accident, it's likely to work. And somebody who is older and uh, maybe has other diseases like cancer or lung cancer, it's probably not going to work. And I personally believe that it hurts if they are slightly conscious, it's physically painful. It breaks ribs. So you're giving them a recommendation. I'm sort of giving them my expectation of mm -hmm. being okay. that particular All right. Sharon, do you do it differently? Do you do it kind of the same? Um, How do you do it? Where is the patient coming from? Have they ever been? 
just wondering, I think sometimes this is a lot harder if it's just approached in a vacuum. And, you know, you guys might be thinking of specific cases which might make it easier, but, you know, I think this is much harder in my mind if I approach a patient if I don't know kind of, you know, where are they coming from, what are their thoughts, you know, potentially, you know, maybe religion, religious beliefs, potentially maybe cultural beliefs, you know. I think it's just hard to just approach somebody and it's just checking a box, just approaching somebody and saying, mm -hmm. well, what are your wishes, you know, you know it's not going to work, you know, what do you want to do? I think, I, I don't know, I, I think you need, you need, this is a sit-down kind of a conversation. Right, and it's very hard to do, um, it's very hard to do well, and it's hard, he's, you know, Dr. Leftcourt is actually absolutely right, it's very hard when you don't have a relationship. And a lot of times when you're doing it in the ER, you're doing it because a, a decision has to be made like pretty quickly. And um, and one of the things that, that Sharon really touched on, which is important, is this whole concept of guilt um, on the part of the family. And, and bringing that up and putting it out there, you know, anytime there's some sort of uncomfortable emotion, um, I heard of palliative care talk and they talk about like one time, it, it was about this and it said, just put it out on the table, like when the, you get the sense that the family believes that their doctor did, you know, something bad, and that's why they're in the ER. You know, you bring, saying, "Well, it sounds like you don't. Maybe you don't trust the doctors, or you don't maybe think that they're acting in your best interest, or, you know, do you feel guilty if you, you know, don't put your mother on life support, um, and and bringing that guilt out in the open." Um, so a lot of times, again, when you're having a DNR discussion, it's typically because you, you need to make a decision about is this patient going to be intubated or is this patient really going to die now? Um, and so it takes a lot of skill and it's very, very difficult. Um, so I, I heard a lot of good things. I heard um, what I liked, what Mike said was this, you know, starting, um, you know, kind of putting it out there, you know, a little bit of warning shot. We're going to talk about some difficult and, and more general. Um, you know, we're going to talk about something difficult and, has it, you know, what would you want if you were approaching the end of your life? Um, and that's good. Um, I think I, I generally, and, and the palliative care literature sort of stresses also to avoid a lot of specifics um, unless a family really requests that. Um, so I typically don't talk about intubation or, or shocks. I say the word life support or heroic measures um, instead. And the most important thing too is a lot of times co-status is discussed in this vacuum and most of the time you're talking about, okay, we can do this treatment or that treatment and this is the chances that it might help you and this is a chance that might not help you. But with co-status, it's always this like, if your heart stops, do you want us to start it again? If you can't breathe, do you want us to put you on a ventilator? Well, it's kind of an innocuous question if you don't know whether or not it's gonna help. So it's hard to know, I mean, I know the data and the numbers because I do this every day, but it's hard to know exactly whether it'll help or not. I mean, there's definitely scenarios where life support is really not going to help someone. Advanced cancer with a poor functional status, it, life support is not going to help that person. Advanced cirrhosis, if that patient goes to the unit with really advanced cirrhosis, it's because they're either bleeding or they're septic and they're going to go into renal failure, they're not going to survive. Um, and then again, you know, bad renal failure with a lot of comorbidities. I mean, a patient who just has really bad COPD or really, really bad CHF, that person might 
survive a trial of life support, even if they're on HOMO2 and they look terrible. Um, so I kind of try to separate out the two groups. So advanced cancer patients um, and cirrhotics and maybe multiple comorbidity, dementia, you know, with more organs, the more organs not working than working tests. Um, if they have that, then I generally, they get lumped into this probably not going to help category. So contraindicated, you really should not be full code is, this is sort of how I say it. I say, look, there is a lot that we can do to help you while you're here. Um, you know, and we're doing, and you list all the things that you're doing. But um, I'm worried that you may be dying. And if you get a lot sicker, putting you on life support machines and doing a lot of heroic invasive treatments are going to prolong that process. And I don't think it would help you. How do you feel about that? Do you understand? And you know, they may say, I don't care, I want a trial. But at least even if they say they completely reject it, maybe you can get something like, well, what if we try this and it doesn't work in three days? Are you okay with stopping? Because your family's gonna have to make the decision to take the machines away. That's another thing that I say is a bad thing. I never say like, we might break your ribs. Um, Cause that's kind of gruesome. But I do say, um, but I do say your family may have to take you off these machines and that can be very traumatic. Um, but if the, if the patient says, well, if it doesn't work and it looks like I'm gonna be on these machines forever, are you okay with stopping? And the patient, and if the patient says yes, then you've done something very helpful for the family because they've heard, you know, the patient said that. But most of the time when I say that, it's really not gonna help you and we shouldn't do these things, but there's all these other things that we are gonna do to try to help you. Most patients are totally fine with that. Again, giving them a, a real option. Um, I mean, telling them what you're doing. I, I don't know if you already addressed this on the, the DNR, but the healthcare provider attitude is an issue to me. You have, say, an elderly person who, if their heart stops, they don't want CPR intubation if they stop breathing, and so they're DNR, but they're really relatively healthy, like I say, 80 or 90 years old. And then we see DNR, and then we think, I mean, I know what it means, we should still be giving them comfort measures or whatever, but it seems to me there's kind of a discrimination that goes on in the mm -hmm. healthcare worker's mind, or at least some healthcare worker's minds, when they see that label. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've really, um, that that is a big issue, and it's something that we've really tried hard to um, to combat. I mean, I've gotten these things from nurses, well, it's patients DNR, why are we drawing blood? Um, but since we've been here, and the palliative care service has been here, we've really, um, a lot more patients have been made DNR, and we've really pushed this concept of DNR does not mean do not treat. I mean, I just wonder um, if we should have a Yeah, we're actually also pushing um, this, there's this, in the palliative care world, there's also this big push to have it called uh, allow AND, allow natural death, um, instead of DNR. But this, um, you know, this is our new um, form for, uh, um, that we're trying to push through the DNR form. And the nice thing about the new DNR form is that it, it separates out a limited intervention, meaning you're a floor patient getting all the re regular floor treatments, and that's different than a comfort care patient. And we don't have like a, real technical delineation. So I'm hoping that that, but a lot of it just requires continual, um, you know, continual education. I mean, we are just so far out there. I mean, if you look at, like, I was so depressed when they built the new hospital because like the percentage of ICU beds like just shot through the roof. And in the United States, 20% of hospital beds are ICU beds. 
In Europe, it's 2%. In Europe, most DNR decisions and unit decisions are made unilaterally by physicians. And a friend of mine who's a Swiss doctor, she did her palliative care fellowship with me, but she's an internist, and she went back to Switzerland to practice internal medicine. And she's like, yeah, one time we coded this 85-year-old patient, and I felt so bad, I like didn't realize she was 85. <laughs> and then I apologized to the family afterward, and I was like, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, so that's kind of, you know, they have a much more extreme, but we have this, like, default, you know, in, in this article I'll send you from the New Yorker, I really, really encourage you to read it. I thought it was, like, the best article, like, ever. And one, this, um, and the main story is a young woman, a 35-year-old woman who's diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer when she's pregnant, and her story about how the doctors dealt with her, because it's so hard when you have a real young patient. And, um, but one of the ICU attendings said, um, I feel like I'm running a warehouse for the dying. That's what I do every day in the ICU because so many, and we have such a high percentage. If you look at UCI, we have a much higher percentage of patients who die in the ICU um, compared to dying on the floor. So we're, we're even way out there in a country that's really way out there. So um, it's very, uh, it's very difficult. Um, so, oh, Lenny, hey. Um, so, as far as making recommendations about code status and about, um, you know, and about maybe shifting towards comfort measures, I think we're really uncomfortable doing that. Um, physicians are generally fearful of making recommendations regarding withholding or withdrawing treatments. There is a lot of personal bias. Um, there's fear of bad outcome. There's fear of paternalism. Um, you know, and the patient should be allowed to choose. You know, but you know, patients and families do want opinions, and it does relieve a sense of burden. I mean, when you see a patient and you know there's only one reasonable choice. Um, you know, Dr. Sender and I worked uh, recently on a patient who had metastatic, uh, or not metastatic, but advanced head and neck cancer, and the family was just very, very unrealistic and felt that he was going to live forever. And Dr. Sanderson did something that was really, you know, he, he just stated to the family, he's like, look, you know, your, fa your, your father is going to die. It's not a matter of if, if. They're going to die and it's a matter of how. You know, and you, and, and, and just, when you're, when you, when you know that there's only one good choice, offering people two choices doesn't make sense. You have to recommend what you believe is the best choice. And just really quick on that, but if there are those patients that you believe that a trial of life support may have some small chance of survival, then it's okay to offer that. I mean, I'll say something like, you know, some people, if they were nearing the end of their life and, and they were got very sick, um, they would really want to just be comfortable. Other people would want to undergo a trial of life support for a period of time to see if they could survive through it. Um, how do you feel? And that's and that's something some, you know, middle middle road, okay. Um, but I would really like to watch you guys have DNR discussions. I know sometimes it's at the, but if you can call me, I can maybe run down and just watch you and give you feedback because that's the way you'll learn and get better. Any questions? Yeah. When they have a lot of guilt. Um, you know, I, I'll just ask them to talk about their feelings. I mean, it's really hard. You know, in medicine, we're not really trained.
trained to get people to talk about how they feel, but it really can be very helpful. So, and I'll say, you know, do you feel like if you choose the comfort route that you're giving up on your mom? Is that how you feel? And then they may say yes, and it's really hard, and you know, I, I just worry that maybe there's something I could be doing. And then you can reassure them, you know, that you know, medically what you feel, but also empathizing with them and saying, wow, it, this, never say you know how they feel because you don't know how they feel. But you can always say this, I can't imagine how this must feel for you. It must be really hard. Um, you know, and, and I can only help, help you make the decision, but um, you know, you just have to, you know, you have to think about what, if, if your mother or your father could hear what we're saying and they could say what they wanted. You have to think about what they would want because your job as the decision maker is not to do what you would want, it's to do what your relative would want and, and try to get them to focus on that. So they're not choosing death, they are carrying out their loved one's wishes. And you say, you know, you're not the one, the cancer is killing your mom. You're not killing your mom, you know, but it's, it's very hard, and if you don't address the emotions, you're not going to get very far. So, any other questions? Great. Oh, it was really fun. Thanks.